So Sapkowski is shading his own his own title for the story. <laughs> <laughs> Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode number six of the podcast. A surprise! We're here today with some more Witcher goodness. Today we are going to be covering the Edge of the World from Last Wish. But before we get into the chapter breakdown, I'd love to introduce my co-hosts, Mikal and Aziz. What's going on, Mikal? Hey guys, how's it going? And we have Aziz from History of Westeros. Hey guys, happy to be here. This story is so funny and interesting, surprisingly uh, unique in so many ways. And of course, we get to meet Dandelion, Jaskier. So cool. So yeah, I'm ready. Let's do it. Let's do it. Geralt the Witcher and Dandelion the Bard are enjoying a drink at an inn located within the town of Upper Posada in the kingdom of Adern. Their new friends, having met at Goulet, not too far to the west, across the river Diffney. Diffine? Diffney? Yeah. It's a rural area, to be sure. If one goes any farther east, there are substantial terrains unfit for human habitation, deserts, mountains, etc. We don't even have maps for what's over there. All this explains why the story and this area are called Edge of the World. Geralt, of course, inquires if there are any monsters troubling Upper Posada. It's both a good sign and bad that the alderman takes a bit of time to remember or perhaps grasp what a witcher even is. A bad sign in that Geralt's services are not in particular demand, but a good sign that the area is monster-free. Isn't that interesting? We have an area so untroubled by monsters that the idea of a witcher itself is fading. Not only that, the monsters named in the area, for the most part, don't even exist, according to Geralt, and others named he wouldn't even consider monster at all. But some would. The alderman does point east to the mountains. Only look ye yonder. See those mountains. There's elves live there. That there's their kingdom. Their palaces here ye are all of pure gold. Why, sir, elves, I tell ye, tis awful. He who yonder goes never returns. He then goes on to blame the elves for creating the non-existent monsters that plague them in admittedly awful ways like tangled horses' manes <laughs> or honest drunken peasants in a stupor prevented from finding their way home. Clearly here in this story, Geralt is facing monsters far more cruel and powerful than ever before. The stakes are clearly raised. Dandelion wonders why people invent monsters when there are so many real monsters out there. Geralt explains to Dandelion that men invent monsters to cover for their own failures, weaknesses, and crimes. Existing monsters can't account for every little thing. For example, a basilisk would indeed prevent a man in a drunken stupor from getting home by killing them. No one will believe you if you pin tangled horses' manes on a striga. One of the reasons why Geralt and Dandelion are working out as friends starts to become clear. They both love discussing philosophy and swapping stories. They don't necessarily agree, but they seem to have a similar process for reasoning through problems. When there's danger about, one has little time for sense frivolities, but riding along the idyllic and bountiful paths in what is called the Valley of Flowers, or Dol Blafana in elder speech, one can't help but relax a bit. A man named Netley catches up to them on the road, and after telling them in his infectious local drawl that he has proper work for them, 
He recognizes the silly tales told in Upper Posada as just that. But in his town of Lower Posada, there's a true monster. Netley offers them a ride in his cart, and they enjoy the scenery even more and continue their conversation. You know about agriculture? We poets have to know about everything, said Dandelion haughtily. Otherwise, we compromise our work. One has to learn, my dear fellow, learn. The fate of the world depends on agriculture, so it's good to know about it. Agriculture feeds, clothes, protects from the cold, provides entertainment, and supports art. And this, too, is why, Netley explains, his forefathers took this place from the elves, because the Valley of Flowers is a valley of plenty, a place where bountiful harvests are common, a place where... Everything seeds mightily here and grows us to make the heart sing. But in the days of the elves, the bounty of this place took a different form, as elves are not known to farm nor domesticate animals. Netley takes them to Dune, the village elder of Lower Posada, who feeds them well and then proceeds to describe the problem facing them. Uh, devil. Curiously, they say the creature is even helpful with regard to the farms, an odd way to begin a description of a problem. It does come, however. He's extremely annoying and perhaps one for going too far with the intoxicants living as he does in a field of hemp. Geralt notes that the hemp field also indicates the devil is clever as large amounts of hemp dampen magic, but the devil causes no serious harm, they say. And for once, the people of a place don't want the creature killed, just driven off. Geralt sets out to confront it, but without violence if necessary, he leaves his sword behind. Dandelion is perplexed by all of this. There's no such thing as devils, yelled the poet, shaking the cat from sleep once and for all. No such thing. To the devil with it. Devils don't exist. True, Geralt smiled. But Dandelion, I could never resist the temptation of having a look at something that doesn't exist. Off they go to rummage through the hemp fields, where after some time and more chatting, this time a bit one-sided, they meet who they're looking for. It doesn't go well. Dandelion describes it succinctly. That's not what I expected. A horned freak with a goatee like a shaggy billy goat. And he chased you away like some upstart. And I got it in the head. Look at that bump. (laughs) Geralt had not been given the full story. They had already tried to drive this devil off by themselves using some strange tactics. And now it's wary of further tricks. The villagers admit to this when confronted and reveal that their revered ancestors in the times when this land was untamed referred to an ancient bookie. (laughs) In this here great book, continued Dunn, which be in our family clan for time immemorial, be ways to deal with every monster, spell, and wonder in the world that has been or will be. An old woman seemingly deaf brings the book a fascinating old tome. Something seems odd about the person presenting the book to Geralt. At first, she seemed a silent teenager, but only the silent part turns out true. When she's closer, he realizes he was wrong, a rarity for someone with his keen eyesight. She is much older, but he cannot determine how much, and notably, the villagers of this town have a certain look to them, one she does not come close to sharing. Furthermore, it's odd that no one, no matter how loud, can make themselves heard to the old woman. But the younger one tells her all that is said by everyone else by whispering in her ear. Hmm. Having noticed such out in the field, they found the devil. Geralt inquires about the offerings of grain. He's puzzled since the creature is clearly an herbivore. Why give it grain or any foodstuffs at all? The girl, whose name is Lilla, they say, is a wise one, though she never speaks. Geralt has heard of this before and understands why they keep her secret. They also tell him that she wanted to meet him before agreeing to let him drive off the Sylvan Devil. 
In other words, Lilla has the final say in things without speaking. The problem is bigger than they've first let on. The Sylvan is taking large amounts of crops, far more than one person or Sylvan could need. Despite the fertility of the place, they're expected to provide a certain amount to the rest of the kingdom, so the bounty is not actually in excess. It's spoken for. Geralt returns to the field to negotiate with the Sylvan, but after it challenges him to some unfair contests, things devolve into wrestling and fisticuffs. Distracted by the scrum, he's unable to prevent being struck by elves from behind and taken prisoner along with Dandelion. When they wake up, the missing pieces of the puzzle fall into place. The Sylvan, named Torque, has been stealing food for the elves. But not only that, he's trying to learn how to farm and use the crops for basics like making clothing so that he can teach the elves the same. The elves are starving. The Valley of Plenty sustain them, but the mountains and forests nearby do not, especially in winter. They're suffering greatly and have no small measure of not unreasonable bitterness. Worse, they see Geralt and Dandelion as a threat to this vital operation. Letting them go is too risky. They could be found out. But as Lilla would not allow the killing of Tork, neither will Tork allow the killing of Geralt and Dandelion, despite their differences. A devil with principles. The Robin Hood of Sylvans. An elf named Teruviel speaks her bitterness, hitting, insulting, and threatening them, and destroying Dandelion's loot. Despite being bound, Geralt manages to break Teruviel's nose, and her bitterness breaks with it. As she pulls her dagger, she begins to sob. As another elf prepares to strike, but is stopped by a command instead. The horse which had just reached the glade was as white as snow, its mane long, soft, and silky as a woman's hair. The hair of the rider sitting in the sumptuous saddle was identical in color, pulled back at the forehead by a bandana studded with sapphires. Philavandral, leader of these elves living in exile. Like many of his people, he once lived where the villagers now live. He explains their predicament, how humans have permanently changed the world, and how dealing with them, living with them, would itself be a deal with the devil. Philavandral declares that indeed the humans must die. A firing squad lines up, though Teruviel does not pick up her bow. She stands beside her fellows. Tork cannot stop them directly, but he stands in front of the prisoners, insisting that this must not be. They insist, but his response is simple. The Sylvan shook his ears, bleated even louder, stared and bent his elbow in an abusive gesture popular among dwarves. Geralt is resigned to it and tells the Sylvan to step aside and let them get it over with. But Tork just repeats the gesture at the Witcher. It's not personal either way. He doesn't like Geralt. It's just that this devil is against killing. Though brave and principled, the elves show no sign of backing down. But then... Lilla entered the glade. She was no longer a skinny peasant girl in a sackcloth dress. Through the grasses covering the glade walked... No, not walked. Floated a queen. Radiant, golden-haired, fiery-eyed, ravishing... The queen of the fields decorated with garlands of flowers, ears of corn, bunches of herbs. At her left-hand side, a young stag pattered on stiff legs. At her right, rustled an enormous hedgehog. The elves kneel. Geralt can tell that Lilla and Philavandral are speaking without talking. Suddenly the elves leave and Philavandral begs her aloud to come with them, calling her Eternal One. She shakes her head and points east a gesture clear and final. Teruviel gives her loot to replace the one she broke, and Dandelion declares it worth the whole endeavor. Geralt himself receives the old book as a reward, and Torque hits the road with them. Later that night, they sit around a fire as the day and story wind down. Dandelion attempts to compose the events into a ballad, and Geralt consults the book about Lilla herself. 
Forsooth, the wise do say that Lithia loveth but one land, and that which groweth on it and liveth alike with no difference, be it the smallest of common apple trees or the most wretched of insects, and all nations are no more to her than that thinnest of trees, because forsooth they too will be gone, and new, different tribes will follow. But Lithia, eternal is, was, and ever shall be, until the end of time. our reactions this one is a really interesting short story it has lots of powerful themes it has really cool lore we're introduced to more of the elven history which is really cool we get another intelligent monster which is something that is unique and uh hell yeah this is a really 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 funny short story we had discussed privately that this one didn't hit hard as home in the way that it was significant later on because we don't see Torque later on. We do see Philovandral and the elves and the anti-elven attitudes and some of the xenophobia and some of that kind of stuff later. But what were your impressions of the, the chapter, Mikhail? Because this is a really interesting one as far as like comparing it to the other short stories. Yeah, I, you know, I think the first time I read it, I wasn't super into it. And then I did a reread a while back and I like actually straight up skipped the story because I was like... I was like, this is the story that has to go if I'm like, if I'm racing to finish the book. So when I read it this time, I wasn't really expecting much, but I actually really quite enjoyed it. Very funny. Dandelion is, well, <laughs> Dandelion. <laughs> you know, like every time you're like, that's it. I hate you. I, I can't deal with you anymore. He does something like charming and endearing and whatever, or says something hilarious. And yeah, I, I thought the themes of narrative that people talk about in, in the story and, and the stories they tell themselves and like kind of the context of the book and the, the really tragic story of the elves um, played out really nicely. Um, there are definitely still parts I'm like, not 100% what you're getting at, <laughs> Sapkowski, but you know, it's overall, I actually quite enjoyed reading the story. This was a very Sapkowski-esque mm -hmm chapter like everything kind of unfolds at the end you know what i mean like that's kind of been the yeah. the the, pa the pattern that we've been discussing I, i'm a real fan of this one for sure the the humor really gets me i laugh out loud really loud reading the story and quoting it and I, I just i love trying to figure out what the heck they're saying like how to pronounce like devil devil like how do you guys say that word devil <laughs> have you listened to the audio have you listened to the audiobook it's really funny the first time I read it, I listened to the audiobook and I was like, why is he saying it like that? Beautiful. <laughs> and I was like, oh, okay, that's actually in the text. <laughs> but it's funny because you were doing you were doing the the, the the townsfolk accent and in the audiobook, that's hilarious as well. It's like it's like a very like folksy, mm -hmm. like peasant, very folksy peasant <laughs> accent. <laughs> How so, do we call them stupid without being insulting? Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> Infectious manner of speaking. Yeah. And there's some creepy, interesting lore. You're, I totally agree with you guys about the elves. Like that is obviously really important for the for the ongoing story. It's an interesting introduction, and it's a surprising turn. You're like, this is you're kind of moving along. It's kind of a little bit silly, lighthearted. There's a little bit of you sense something is coming because that book has these monsters in it. You're like, okay, something something unusual is going to happen. But it, it's not really the what you would expect. When I first read it, I thought there would be some some real monster. Like behind all this, there was going to be something damn. But of course, again, it's the monsters are the people. It did come out that way, but it's not. 
the monster, the people that are there now. It's these people that are long gone. If, if anyone, maybe not, maybe even they weren't monsters, but I, that's just really fascinating. These, the, the way that there's no right answer here. There's no like, no bad guy. So yeah, great story. Torque is, Torque is really interesting too, as he is, because he's like this representation of a shadow of all of these different characters we see with, within the short story. And so, something that I like to allude to and that maybe some of you caught while doing, doing your read is he's kind of like the angel and the devil on your shoulder. He's like trying to, he's trying to be a balance of both sides. You know, he's, he's really this, this great mediator between all of these different things that are going on while being absolutely hilarious. And uh, causing trouble for all sorts of people. <laughs> Overall, it, it was a really different hitting chapter. Like, I agree with Mikhail in the sense that when I read it again, I was like, oh, it, was, it wasn't as like, um, depressing some of the others <laughs> kind of tears at your heartstrings. It's like, oh, this is a fun little adventure. Like they're ha- they're sitting around a campfire and they're they're alive and happy. And it's just it just tugs at your heartstrings a little bit. This one once you reread it, I find. Yeah, what's what's that candy that you like have to lick to get to the center of? It's a it's, yeah, yeah. So it's it's kind of like you keep looking through all like the comedy and all the the fun the funny stuff, and then you get like this brief little like oh, crap, things are really serious and sad. <laughs> and then we kind of like go back. <laughs> yeah, you do kind of go back. It's like, because it's, it's another world almost. It's like, it's, mm-hmm. it's the elves problem almost. Like that, that they're still, there's some sort of detachment from it because Geralt and Dandelion, they don't live amongst, they, they, can, they can sympathize, but they're not going to live amongst the elves. They're going to remain detached from this problem until it becomes personal. Like, as they say, like one day we're going to come out of these mountains and, and come fight you or something like that. <laughs> People, Geralt turned his head, like to invent monsters and monstrosities. Then they seem less monstrous themselves. When they get blind, drunk, cheat, steal, beat their wives, starve an old woman. When they kill a trapped fox with an axe, or riddle the last existing unicorn with arrows. They like to think that the bane entering cottages at daybreak is more monstrous than they are. They feel better then. They find it easier to live. Yeah, it's like the, they do... What he does is it's, it's like a system of keeping it light. You know, you're riding along the path. or they, they get more relaxed, the characters do, by going from horseback to riding in a cart. You have time to talk about philosophy. I mean, if you have time to discuss philosophy, your life is going pretty well, right? I mean, <laughs> <laughs> you're not fending off monsters or starving to death or anything like that. You've got a little bit of time. So that in itself helps you relax. They're talking about lupins and look at all the corn, you know, <laughs> like that's not exactly a sense of danger. But then bam, gets serious. Yeah, and that, that quote really kind of presages it, right? Yeah. Because we come, we come across that quote in the beginning of the story when they are still pretty relaxed. And then Geralt drops this kind of like dark... FYI, real monsters of humanity. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he's still kind of wary, but not fully wary. I mean, he leaves his sword when he goes to check out the silver. He's like, well, if these guys aren't being harmed by it, then I have nothing to worry about. But he's yeah. still like, you know, he's still like, wary. Like, something is going on here. <laughs> yeah. The pacing is really interesting in this one because we talked privately and we were like, there is more filler, but the way Sapkowski navigates it is, is really interesting. 
I think there are stories that are filler. And then I feel like there are stories that are philosophical stuffing of the story, you know? And I, th- I think that's what, we, what we're doing here. Like, there are just a lot of ideas in this story that are laid down that are just very important um, going forward, which as cool as like lesser evil or whatever, like it's, it's not, not all the stories have that depth of seed planting mm-hmm. that will you know become important later on. That's true. Like I wouldn't say you had to le- read this story, but I think that looking back, it definitely contributes a lot to to the general, I don't know, texture of The Witcher. It's funny that you say seed planting. <laughs> short lot. It's, it's a lot about growth and fertility and loss and mm-hmm. and, and all of that. So that's yeah. <laughs> it's funny that torque that that torque is kind of a representation of that. This odd character. Yeah, it's a, he's an interesting messenger for the story. It's not at all what one would expect. I mean, a devil, right? Like that is he's not very devilish. <laughs> I mean, there's some he has some aspects that are associated with devil stories, but personality and like outlook and level of, I don't know, violence is very different. And I love that, that subversion of, of that theme. It's both somewhat typical of Sapkowski, but not typical. Reading over this story again, it became really evident to me that this is about narrative in a certain way and about the importance of narratives in people's lives. On the surface, it's kind of like, oh, well, this is the story where we meet Dandelion and that just happens to be. But I think it's actually really important that we meet him because he is the storyteller that that is going to eventually carry us through the story. And you know, the idea of, of meta-narratives within The Witcher is going to become really important and Dandelion plays really heavily into that. I really like, actually, that this story doesn't have... At least the three of us uh, North Americans couldn't really pick up on a specific like fairy tale that this was really playing off of. And I, I like the idea that it's more the stories that people are telling in their lives that is the, the story inspiration for this story. You know, Geralt starts off by telling us about, all, you know, the quote I read about the people, the, the stories that people tell themselves, which is really ironic because so it would make sense for us to make up stories about monsters but like people in this world have actual monsters so why do they still bother making up stories about monsters and it's you know it's that human thing um that you need to feel less monstrous i think that idea of narrative continues with netley and the villagers because they're super protective of leela she's basically the witch who's going to be burned if they fail to protect her and there's a really interesting passage about how the narratives that are advanced by the wise ones are usually in direct conflict with like the immediate best interests of the lords. So the lords are like, burn the witch. And then the people are like, no, <laughs> we'll kill all our herds or do whatever seemingly crazy thing that they, uh, they ordered us to do instead. That narrative usually prevails. Then there's the idea that we have a, an actual book in this story, which I love because it's, you know, it's not just fantasy and also like reality. Like we have a great passage we're going to get into about the, the, the Witcher entry in this book. Um, but this, this book provides the whole village with a narrative that they think keeps them safe. Um, and it gives them meaning. It gives kind of justification for them being here in this valley, which obviously is something that the elves are going to object to pretty strongly. It doesn't even matter that, you know, the old woman can't read. That's irrelevant. The point is the story. The book is like a vessel for their traditions, like a lot of stories are. 
It's it's funny, Mikal, because it's kind of like Sapkowski is taking a, a shot at Christianity in the Bible. Yeah, it's very interesting. With There's some very interesting jabs at tradition in this story. The way people make tradition their own and how that changes from what it you know was supposed to be or the original version or whatever is fascinating. That's why we see it's so interesting, the interpretation of uh, how people see the devil, mm-hmm. the devil, the devil. And that that's kind of one of the really strong themes in the chapter. Yeah. I love the conceptualization of time here and how, like you said, McCall, they they feel like they've been there forever. Yet the, some of the elves in the mountains were alive when the land was... T- a lot of them were alive when the land was taken from them by these humans' great-great-great-grandparents or whoever. So to them, it hasn't been that long at all. So since forever is and would be an insulting phrase to say to them. They're like, since forever, I'm. This happened when I was a kid, <laughs> you know, like or mm-hmm. I when I was a, a full grown adult, and and now I'm just well, I don't know how to reckon in elf time, but it's not mm-hmm. since forever from their perspective by any means. And I think that's just really interesting. That's the kind of thing that again, as North Americans. <laughs> <laughs> We feel like, you know, we've, we really haven't been here that long <laughs> compared mm-hmm. to how long this continent has been here and how long people have been here. Time is, is funny that way. And, and our ability to view time is very small. And this concept of the elves living, having lives that are so much longer that their take on history and lifespans is so very different and hard to fathom. We're going to wait this out. We're going to wait the, out the lifespans of several human, you know, generations. Like, oh, we'll just wait. Like, wow. <laughs> like, it's hard to fathom. That's where we get into the theme of assimilation. We've seen that with, you know, the Bible being written over like new versions of the Bible and this story being story of Christianity changing over years and years and years. And we see the kind of the, you know, the elves have been dying out, like they're just trying to survive. And we kind of see that assimilation thing going on. Yeah, well, that's really what Geralt and Philavangel are arguing about, right? They're, they're arguing about which, which is the narrative of survival. Is the narrative of survival that you become like the power that you reject being dominant over you, but you ha- you, you're forced to accept that and you live, you know, in the, in the next story, like minor spoiler, we're going to have a, an assimilated elf character. He's, he's a very interesting contrast to these elves um, in the mountains here. And there's survival that way. Or do you survive through kind of a, a path of violence and death where you make yourself as separate and as bitter as possible and like literally a, an impossible Thing to digest for, for the dominant culture to digest and that is obviously extremely destructive to both the the elves and the broader human culture i find that conversation really really fascinating it's something that will come up a couple of times with multiple you know i guess fantasy species in in the books yeah <laughs> yeah and it's it's a really interesting idea because which is the more valuable prospect right like is it more valuable to be alive and lose your sense of identity or is it more valuable to like be starving and dying in the mountains but separate and remaining yourself to the end really it's a complicated question Aziz that's what makes Geralt's speech so powerful right he's like really he's really being honest with Philavandra he's like hey man I see what's going on I feel for you but if you continue to act like this you guys won't survive yeah it's really powerful you're right he's also just kind of angry because he's feels like he's about to die. So he's really just going to give, say everything on his mind and there's no reason to hold back. Because in previous stories, he had kind of been like, 
trying to fix all of these different human problems. But uh, obviously, Geralt is similar to Villavandril in the sense that he's experiencing some of these same problems that he is, right? Yeah, and, and turning it around, what I said before about the long span, lifespans of elves, they're blaming these humans, and Geralt's like, look, not a single one of these humans took your land. That was their great-great-great-grandparents or whatever, and if you want to look at them as a monolith, that's fine. To see that that's something that we very, dis, very much disagree on, that these people may not be innocent, but they don't deserve to die for, you know, and then being having stuff stolen from them is, maybe that's fair, but the the humans feel on the other hand feel entitled to the land because their fathers and mothers did not just the work of taking the land which is disputable you know that's maybe wasn't such a fair thing to do but the actual driving away the monsters and planting the farms they did that the humans did all that so they feel some entitlement to that they put work into it making it livable and all that so it, it is really a tough spot to be in it's a really interesting conundrum what do you do yeah and and i you know I, Sapkowski doesn't try to answer the question, which is important, I think. Yeah. Because it's just sort of like, you, you do just kind of have to sit with that. And there is this idea that like, you know, the consequences are sort of inevitable, but they're also the result of choices that people make in that path. And that's something that we'll see with the elves specifically. I know it's sad, like for a very funny story <laughs> with a, a devil character, it's also like, oh God. <laughs> Connects with the main overarching theme of the whole series, which is um, destiny, which is like, and, and this yeah. inaction versus action thing, like, okay, if you don't act, some, something's going to happen. But if you do act, at least you're in control of what you're doing somewhat, you know? So it's that kind of narrative that Sapkowski's trying to get us to feel. Yeah. Yeah. I think another little theme here is the importance of places like this. Not just that, you know, it's easy to make fun of and to joke about, which we we have done. But it's also like, this is vital. This area is extremely vital to the whole nation. They talk about how their food goes out to various places and it's it's important. And that's just a completely normal human thing. I mean, any of us who live in a city... The, the food we eat is not coming from within the city for the most, I mean, there's exceptions, but most of it is grown outside of the city. And that's an important distinction, you know, the rural urban dichotomy there. I, I like that as a, as a presentation because it's, it's something that's true even now. Modern, ancient, you have places where food is grown that are vital, that kind of supports the entire nation. Because of that, we're all allowed to look at books and, and read technology and, and do whatever we want because the food is taken care of. That's a great contrast to the elves, I think, because you know the, the elves, I guess, in, in traditional conception of them i mean like let's get real sapkowski just kind of steals from tolkien um, which is fine because <laughs> he's commenting on that also yeah. um but like you know they are very erudite and very like all-knowing and stuff like that they've gone from that state you know in which you know the the earth they didn't even have to farm the earth would just like flower forth with food and stuff and support for them so now they're, they're literally like they have no idea even how to plant the most basic of crops for sustainability. And, you know, that, that arc, I think from being, you know, the top of the food chain, but not even kind of acknowledging that there's a food chain to being almost at the bottom. And that experience of rage is really, really powerful. It, sh it shows the social hierarchies of the human race mm -hmm. specifically, right? Like the sense of entitlement. And then all of these lost traditions are happening. We see like kind of the erosion of, 
of culture in the short story. Mm-hmm. Well put. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's interesting too to have th- this thought that this is the outside of the, you know, on the outskirts, but it's arguably the most, one of the most vital things. So that, I just think that's an interesting contrast too. Um, and all, uh, just yeah. the difference to this area too, like Dandelion says, there's wisdom in ancient songs, which is a really great comment and theme because that's true. Like these, these ideas are captured by songs. It's a great way to preserve them because songs have their have more longevity, well, can have more longevity because they're so memorable. They can, you know, they stick in your mind and they're are like an earworm and <laughs> they can last forever. Yeah. yeah. Well, on that note, really, I mean, I think the, the kind of like mini arc of Dandelion's loot is really important in this story. Oh, yeah. Yeah, because that's kind of like his, I mean, it's not just his, you know, way of earning money and, and therefore earning food. It's his way of telling stories. And when Teruvial breaks that, she's she like denies him the right to tell stories. She tells him to like play at a cow's horn, you savage. And be, that's because Dandelion and humans and in her mind are totally unworthy of being of having a narrative. Like they, they are not allowed to be part of the story. Um, and she's trying to violently put that down. But then you know, when Leela kind of shows up and, and reverses that, she basically validates their part of the story. And that's when Dandelion gets her, to reveals own loot. And he's able to tell stories with that elven tool. And I, I really... About them. Yeah, exactly. And and it says, you know, she gives it to him wordlessly and he accepts it wordlessly. But um, Dandelion's eyes said a great deal. Uh, and of course, that's how we get, honestly, the message of this story mm. because Dandelion then sets it into song and... and makes it part of that tradition. If we were people in the Witcher universe, we'd pass on and, and learn from, like the book, like all these other things that are, again, not necessarily accurate, but true. <laughs> well, one thing that I that I will say that the show did good, I kind of want to just jump in here, is we got Toss a Coin. Yeah. Mm-hmm. At, the, yeah. at the edge of the world. Oh, yeah. Toss an yeah. elf on every shelf. Toss an elf. I can't, I can't, I can't remember. But, but then we see the direct correlation of Dandelion, Yaskir, and Geralt being on this adventure and them, and, and Dandelion being this history teller. It's it's so great, right? Yeah, yeah. The story, the song, it it, it works like that. As much as they le- left a lot out of the episode, that at least that core theme was retained, which was that the music is important for for memory. It tells stories, and the better the composition, the more likely it is to survive and and thrive and and go viral. Which you know, whether you like the song or not, toss a coin to your Witcher went viral. I yeah. mean, there's no doubt that song did really well, and it did its job. It's, it's amazing that it, 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 you can see why it went viral in world because it went viral in the real world. So it's like, this is, this is authentic. <laughs> so I love that. That worked out really well. But also to your point about un, um, how his eyes said it all, the end of the story is full of that unspoken communication from the very straightforward Lilla using telepathy mm. to Dandelion accepting the loot and to the, the looks that passed between Geralt and Teruvial and Philavandrel and all that. And it's just heartrending the the idea that the elves want Lily to come with them. And she's like, no. And it makes me think of the same sort of stuff we were just talking about with maybe like North America, where the land was the thing they worshipped. And when that's taken away, that's like 
being denied your gods or something mm-hmm. like that. And I can't fathom what that's like having your gods leave you or something like that, whatever the equivalent term is. Yeah, I mean, well, there's the idea of being rejected. Or of, of fe- feeling like the God's love is gone, like someone who's a devout worshiper. For someone who has a sincere, deep belief, to lose it, to lose God's love is... A humongous. I mean, there's really nothing worse than that, I suppose, or or it's a, you know about as bad as it gets. So, again, that's where it goes from soft spoken to powerful, just in a blink when you start thinking about it. And uh, yeah, it's really powerful, right? <laughs> yeah. Songs are another version of storytelling, and it's so interesting that Yaskier is a bard because you know in historical lore, bards have been known to tell stories, and of course, we see that with Dandelion Yaskier in the books and in the show, and then also. Sylvans have been known to love music and wine. So Sapkowski is doing it on the double here. He's really trying to give this kind of this is like alternate version of storytelling within the short story. Yeah. Yeah, it's very meta. (laughs) (laughs) If we said there were there was less fairy tales, but more Christian theology and more like Greek mythology in this one, as opposed to like it was like more about gods. Yeah. More about gods in this one, yeah. Even like the idea of a book that they don't read is very much in line with a lot of traditional Christianity, whereas for a long, long time, peasants weren't even allowed to read the Bible. First of all, they couldn't understand it because it was written in Latin and they didn't speak Latin. They spoke English or French or what have you. And then it was like heresy to translate it. And then it was, eventually it was normal and everyone had a Bible. But, which is, it's strange to think about that, right? Because now, especially, you know, in America and a lot of other places, their Bibles are everywhere. There's one in every hotel room. So the idea of it being something that people, regular people weren't allowed to own or read, it was kind of wild, but it's, it's completely true and, and um, well-documented. And, uh, but the idea was, the idea was they didn't want other people making their own interpretations. Mm-hmm. They wanted to control the interpretations and the, the takes, basically. No hot takes on the Bible. <laughs> <laughs> so I think that's kind of neat and the, the the old-timey speech and weird names for measurements for example in the Bible there's the term cubit I don't have a particularly Christian upbringing but I remember even some of my Christian friends making fun of that term like what the hell is a cubit you know and and in this one we have the word utricle and for uh, Philip, there's two weird measurement words that I can't remember the second one. It's like, what? <laughs> and I'm pretty sure he was having fun with that. It really feels like just using old timey measurements that sound funny, you know? Yeah. <laughs> like, <laughs> and the, the, even the, the sentence pattern, like take of, you know, two parts old or soft cheese or, you know, like, like <laughs> things just being in the wrong parts of the sentence to, to our like modern ears. Um, and then, I mean, he explicitly quotes the golden rule. Or I guess yeah. reverses the golden rule: don't do unto others as uh, what you would not have them do unto you. Um, which I have <laughs> to think is just an explicit reference right there. Yeah. Well, he is this, this Sapkowski inversion that we see in every short story. Yeah. So here's the uh, yeah. Here we actually actually pulled the uh, two quotes from the Old Testament Leviticus. Here they are. Thou shalt not re- not avenge nor bear any grudge against the children of thy people, but thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. I am the Lord. Okay, so here's the other quote. But treat them just as you treat your own citizens. Love foreigners as you love yourselves, because you were foreigners one time in Egypt. I am the Lord, your God. So those are both from Leviticus, like I said, Old Testament. And that's obviously on theme. McCall brought up the golden rule, which is perfect. Yeah, that's very much in play here. Geralt 
tries to talk to Torque. And then when Torque is just not having it, he's like, all right, well, you threw this ball at me. I'm throwing it back at you. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, do unto others. Yeah. <laughs> That's just like a really funny part where they're just like, okay, so you were trying to get rid of him and you armed him. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's like, why didn't you arm him? It said two balls. Just- <laughs> Yet he gave it the balls a sack full. <laughs> and Dandelion's enraged. It's so good. There's like a lot of strong traditions that are associated with the devil that we're going to talk about here. Like um, deal with the devil, like making your land more fertile, like selling yeah. your soul for some form of advancement. Yeah, that's a really common theme. And some of that's like pop culture Christianity. I don't think that's biblical, right? I'm, I'm not the, the man to ask, but I'm pretty sure that no one's like making deals with the devil in the Bible that I'm aware of. Correct me if I'm wrong, but it seems, certain seems, seems like a more pop culture thing, like stories, like music stories, like Robert Johnson sold his de- soul to yeah. the devil to be really good at guitar and things like that. And, and with that, Along along that line, we have contests with the devil, right? Co- like the, the devil gets, again, guitar contest or violin contest or what have you. So I think that's being played with here where the devil, where Torque is like, well, let's let's have a race, but I get to start for, you know, he's just, all, that's, that's the common theme, the devil cheats. And here Torque isn't being sneaky about it. He's just like, no, I, I'm going to have an advantage. Otherwise I won't play, you know? <laughs> and it's like, wait, that's, hey. Elves are associated with the devil in a lot of Christian traditions and just old traditions that are associated or influenced by Christianity without being directly Christian like Beowulf. The story of Beowulf says elves were born from Cain killing Abel. So that's obviously Christian influence, but I don't think the Bible verifies that. <laughs> Still, that you can see this, this association with Torque, who is a devil, and elves. So I think that's probably where that came from. Yeah, and you can even, I mean, he sort of addresses that where Dandelion's like, well, devils don't exist. I thought we invented them so we could swear about them. You know, like the, <laughs> the devil, devil shice or whatever it is. The, you know, and, and he has a whole list. The dwarven curse. Yeah. Um, <laughs> By the way, Cain and Abel, sons of Adam and Eve. Cain was a farmer. Abel was a shepherd. So oh. we kind of see him sprinkling that in with uh, Torque. That's uh, cool. In- yeah, right on. From the wiki, I found this. The short story ends with the words, Good night, said the devil. I think Ludmilla helped us with this one. It's a Polish idiom to say where the devil says good night, referring to a place that's in the middle of nowhere. In other words, edge of the world. So that's, that's a great example of something we goes over our heads because it's a Polish idiom. So thanks to Ludmilla for catching that. Yeah, that's one. actually a real shame because the end of the story... It's kind of like eh, when you when you read it in English, you know, because we just have no like it's like good night to the devil. All right, cool, good night to work, whatever, you know. But that is such a that's that's an actual meaningful reference apparently in in Polish. So yeah, that's that's kind of a shame that, that you know things do get lost in translation. Yeah, but thankfully we have Polish friends to uh, fill us in and all the stuff we're missing. <laughs> Sapkowski clearly has some of his thinking is, you know, I'm sure he's taken from a variety of cultures that were pushed aside, but I think he's particularly thinking of the Celtic Britons, the Welsh in particular, because the elder speech is very, very much uh, Welsh sounding. Um, Gwent is a Welsh kingdom, and that's the Witcher card game. Welsh names often had the app or ab or ep, you know, like the app, for example, 
There's a million dudes named Llewellyn in, well, in Wales that was like the most common name. It maybe still is. There's names like Llewellyn Ap Griffith, which is, a, he was a famous prince, and Llewellyn Ap Sizzle. I'm probably saying that wrong. Llewellyn Ap Sizzle, Llewellyn the Sizzle. The double D sound is pronounced T-H in Welsh, so it's, that's why I said Griffith when, when it looks like Griffith and uh, Gwyneth. Is, is not Gwynedd, you know? So Welsh is very difficult to pronounce. So it, it's a great language to adopt for sounding mystical because it's also associated with druids and, and the elves live among nature. So it really fits quite well. It, the whole thing about elves not domesticating animals or using agriculture, that's very much a druidic influenced thing. And the Celtic Britons were slowly pushed into Western England as the Saxons and then later Danes and other cultures moved in. And Western England is where they have lots of mountains and hills and deep forests, which is where the Welsh kind of retreated to. And that's what we're seeing here with the elves. So very, uh, very similar in a lot of ways. Shall we get into some character analysis? Let's do it. Characters, yeah. I think we got, we got to start with Dan, Dandelion Yaskier, right? <laughs> sure. Or Buttercup, or should we say Buttercup? <laughs> Can you imagine <laughs> if they went with Buttercup as the translation? I'm oh really imagining the, the, the translator just going like, oh, what do I do? <laughs> <laughs> it, it, it would make Dandelion, everything Dandelion does so much more egregious and flamboyant. Like, I'd be like, yeah. Well, even Dandelion, honestly, Dandelion is not like, in at least American English, flowers are feminine like names like they, they, they just are yeah so like dandelion is less feminine than buttercup but like when i i read that like i had a really hard time like wrapping my wrapping my <laughs> mind around like a male character named dandelion on a personal meta level it kind of points out like how silly all this is. <laughs> flowers are you know what there's nothing feminine about flowers really but it's just yeah it, it's it's very interesting to me actually when people pointed out that like Yaskier doesn't have that same female connotation in Polish. Hmm. You know what's really interesting about dandelions too is, is that it's used for medicinal purposes. And in a way I like to think of Dandelion's relationship to Geralt specifically at like his love for Geralt and their friendship as a sort of medicine. You know, Geralt has a very difficult time opening up and we see Yaskier even though he's a sh- <laughs> really, 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 really help with Geralt expressing himself. Yeah, his yeah. his like positivity is a good has a good impact on Geralt. That's a really good way to put it. Like he does have that rejuvenating power. Like he is a bit of he is sort of like medicine for Geralt. He helps him. Like he's one, he's his only real friend. I mean, Geralt obviously Yennefer is a closer to him than Dandelion, but they spend more time with Dandelion and they're, that's a much different style relationship. So as far as like his buddy, this is really his only buddy. So, and and mm-hmm. we don't have, when you only have one friend, that one friend is really important. It's funny when you said the thing about Dandelions, because I was going to say, oh, what, they're, they're weeds? <laughs> <laughs> well, well, it's funny because they're both sweet and bitter. And yeah. we see the Dandelion as both. And they can really yeah. go viral, right? Right, yeah. <laughs> yeah, they, 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 they can spread. They can spread throughout like dandelion songs. And they're tough. They can grow anywhere. Yeah, they're... 
<laughs> they just turn up where, where they're not hard wanted. To, <laughs> hard to get rid of. <laughs> oh, man. And it really does speak to him pretty well. <laughs> yeah. I, I wonder if that was intentional from Sapkowski. <laughs> I don't know. The way Sapkowski has built this character, he... He runs from relationships and, and people, but he doesn't run from danger. And Geralt's kind of similar. Geralt also is more likely to run from uh, an uncomfortable, awkward situation, but not if it's a violent situation. He's like, no, I'll fight. I'm not going to run from a fight. He may not want to. He may think it's wrong to fight, but it's not going to be fear that drives him away or awkwardness. But relationships, oh yeah, that can... But neither of these guys are good with relationships. <laughs> <laughs> It's, it's funny because, yeah, you talk about Jaskier or Dandelion running away from relationships. We have Geralt doing the same thing. Oh, yeah, so they're yeah. peas in a pod when it comes to that. <laughs> they, they have so much in common despite also having somebody. Like, I love the, we'll obviously talk about it another time, but the voice of reason portion of this where he's like, oh, I studied history because the books were, it was easier to conceal alcohol behind the book, you know? <laughs> and he's like, Geralt's like, like this? <laughs> it's like, yeah, it's a perfect example of how they think like but also like the nature of their work like Geralt has to wander around looking for monsters to kill and Dandelion has to go from place to place too because people are going to get tired of his songs and he's got to go to another town and find go, go where the love is right because he, he wants to be adored and when he's been in a place for a while he wears his welcome out and they've heard <laughs> his songs and so moving on is part and parcel of his life and lifestyle which obviously fits Geralt really well too by the way, uh, Macrophage says in the chat, Yask Rawi in Polish means bright and bright. Exactly like Yaskier. Oh, Dandelion. nice. Oh, so cool. once again, thank you for more translations. <laughs> Torque is a sylvan, which is referenced in the chapter, which is described as an exceedingly rare humanoid species of intelligent herbivores. Sylvans resemble a human with goat's horns on their head, hairy legs with cloven hooves, and tails with tassels at the end. Because of their horns, they are referred to as devils mm -hmm. or devils by superstitious peasants, a nomenclature that sylvans are not particularly fond of. Sylvans are also called willovers, pucks, and yakshas, which mm -hmm. is <laughs> which is, I don't know. <laughs> they live in forests uh, like Brokilon, in which they are tolerated by dryads and leprechauns. I never knew that leprechauns had that much power in the continent, but there you have it. <laughs> <laughs> and at times they descend to fertile farming areas, such as the Valley of the Flowers, which is used referenced earlier because of the abundance of food. They aren't seen as a threat by humans and are often accepted as harmless. They are playful. They are often known to play as tricksters within mythology and different lore. They, they love riddles. So we <laughs> just definitely see, see a little bit of that in the chapter as well. Yeah, I love that part. He's got such a great, funny personality. Everything about Torque is so unexpected. <laughs> it's like, what? Yeah. What? <laughs> well, and you, you ne don't expect the depth from him at all. Yeah. Like, I really like your description of him as he's a goat Robin Hood. <laughs> like, <laughs> you know, he's, he's making all these jokes. He's like, he is doing the puckish thing very much. So, and then he kind of like turns around and is like a hero. Yeah. And it's, it's awesome. He's kind of a jerk, but he is a hero. It's like, well, you, you can easily forgive this jerkiness when you realize how like heroic he is and like sticks to his guns and he has good <laughs> principles, basically like 
when for the important principles. Obviously, uh, we could criticize him for chasing women around and setting fields on fire with his pipe and things like that. Those are clearly bad <laughs> deeds. But it's true that if you are the kind of person that stands up for for people's lives and and you know are brave and you can get away with things like that if you are really good in other ways so <laughs> well Aziz, it says that sylvans value peaceful resolution when caught between the conflict of elves and humans specifically and they despise bloodshed hmm. so we see that clearly uh, this is just in the witcher lore you can go in the wick uh, the witcher wiki and find this but it's really interesting how Sapkowski develops that even further. There was some interesting stuff I found about Sylvans in Greek mythology hmm. that I'll just uh, share with everyone. Um, so, so Sylvans can be connected to multiple mythologies and folklore, but they're more they're more featured in Greek and Roman mythology, which they share a lot of mythology. The word Sylvan actually comes from the word Sylvanus uh, in Roman mythology, who was a Roman tutelary deity of the woods and all uncultivated lands. He is also described as a god of watching over the fields and husbandmen in particularly protecting the boundary of fields. Mm -hmm. So that's pretty interesting. We kind of see Torque doing that within the chapter. We see him with his big balls getting in. He's picking, he's, you know, he's protecting the hemp and the, the crops and stuff like that. He's fight. He literally wins a battle against Yaskier and Geralt. So, uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so good. Also, Sylvanus is described as the divinity of protecting the flock of cattle. I find that really interesting since we see a flock of elves and warding off wolves, which is funny because Geralt comes from the school. Of yes, the right. So I don't know. <laughs> I don't know if Sapkowski was pulling from that, but it could be. Um, pro I'm probably just reading too much into it. Uh, in Greek mythology, also, Sylvans are connected to the Greek god uh, of trees, Dionysus, the god of wine, vegetation, pleasure, and festivity. That's quite interesting because Syl Sylvans are said to love music and dancing and have a direct connection to that in this story with the introduction of dandelions. Torque as an herbivore, literally never has to kill. So he, from his perspective, it's like kind of an alien concept. So I appreciate that it's, it's built into his character that he's not just randomly pacifist. You know, it's no, it's like this, this fits with, you know, lore, all the things behind him, all the, all the, se the setup for this being. It's, it's so nice. He's really a great canvas for all of the different issues that we see yeah. um, mm -hmm. in the short story. Yeah, and again, stealth, you know, on, on Sapkowski's part, because you wouldn't expect something serious uh, and, and weighty to come from this character, but it really does. Well said. Yeah. So a couple of the elves we should talk about. Mm -hmm. um, obviously, the, the conversation between them is really important. You really do feel the suffering must be really intense for them. Teruvial's frustration is so intense that she kind of snaps a bit and starts crying. And we're not going to talk spoilers, but she does come later. She's a, another, a character that remains in the story. So that's kind of interesting. The whole idea of how long they've been suffering too, because it's like another thing that reflects on human lifespans versus elf lifespans. Like uh, a human being who spends their whole life suffering is obviously a terrible, tragic thing, but an elf can potentially could suffer for much longer because they have longer lives. And that's kind of this one of the things that really comes up here is just, wow, they've not only are they suffering, but they've been suffering a long time and they're slowly seeing so much of their society fall apart because the younger elves 
don't agree with the older elves on certain things, but the younger elves are the ones that can breed and their society really is on the precipice. Like the edge of the world is a, is a good metaphor for where they're at too. And, and, and them experiencing so much trauma, them being at the edge of their limit for how much more they can yeah. take. Mm-hmm. He wasn't deceiving Geralt and Dandelion when he said they live in silver towers. That's just what he's been told and he, has, yeah. he hasn't challenged that idea. I don't think he is, it's, I don't think it's a malicious lie, but it's clearly false. <laughs> <laughs> well, not only is it false, it's clear that the elves do have some degree of like material wealth that is useless to them, right? Like we, we have um, Philavandrel come in with like, what is it, emeralds or something on his on his headband? Yeah. And it's like, well, you can't eat those. So, you know, like they're, they're in such a state that the idea of like normal wealth that we would perceive it and that I think the people of the village would perceive it is completely nullified. Yeah, the whole idea that the elves are making these monsters too is like, that's just really sad. They're not making, well, I mean, it, it sort of is true, but not really. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, there's a there's a grain of truth to that, but it's mostly not true. <laughs> so, oh, a grain of truth. I see what you did there, Aziz. Phil <laughs> <laughs> Evandrel, as a leader of elves, he has this interesting sort of, resp- he has a responsibility towards his people it's a long-held responsibility, and it's as we we talked about. There's so much tragedy surrounding the whole thing. They're they're kind of on a tightrope. You know, he's bound by the wishes of his people, but he also has to keep them from getting ahead of themselves with their need to be violent and to take revenge on the humans. Because, well, what good will that do if they just all come down from the mountains and get killed? Like, what what good is that, right? Although they're some of them are quite willing to do that rather than starve to death. It's again, we're right back to what that, that theme we started with where it's like, is, there is no answer here. What's the right move? How do you solve this? And <laughs> there's no best option. Exactly. Mm-hmm. There, yeah, there isn't yeah. one. There, it's like, I don't know. I don't know. That's why Geralt and, and Phil Evangel have this debate and, not, and neither of them really are super convincing. Honestly, if you were in his place, if I was in his place, I might be feeling the exact same way. I might not be, I might not have that forgiveness in me or that patience. The woman can only waggle her chin and mumble a text which she doesn't understand herself. And you stare at the girl with gaping mouths as if she were the statue of a goddess. You avoid her eyes but try to guess her wishes. And her wishes are your command. Who is this Leela of yours? But you have guessed that, sir. A prophetess, a wise one, but say not of this to anyone. <laughs> yeah, it's a neat little device that Lilla is the only person that can speak to this old woman who everyone says is deaf, yet she can't hear them when they're yelling, but she can whisper in her ear and they hear her. And then eventually, of course, we realize this is that's just an act. It's telepathy. So that's kind of neat. So what I really wonder is history of this character or this being and they just don't know like there's a lot of mystery around this and how did she factor in like when the elves were pushed away by the humans when the 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 human settlers came in like what was she doing like did she play a role did she just watch i really i'm fascinated by how what what that must have been the elves may have been really 
even sadder when she just watched this happen and they, they maybe expected her to do something. Or maybe that was exactly what they expected, but that she wouldn't do anything. So I, I, it's, it's very sad and mysterious and haunting. Is she really a character? That's the thing. Like, I, I mm. she's very interesting, but she is kind of more like an avatar of fertility slash growth slash nature. Yeah, you're um, right. Yeah. Yeah. She's definitely not a person. Yeah. <laughs> right, exactly. Yeah. But she's not an elf either. So it's, it's. Yeah, he, he seems, Geralt has this. This concept that he's he seems to be aware of this concept of these women like Lilla. The strange women and girls called prophetesses or wise ones who could be found in villages didn't enjoy the favor of those noblemen who collected levies and profited from farming. Farmers always consulted prophetesses on everything and believed them blindly and boundlessly. Decisions based on their advice were often completely contrary to the politics of lords and overlords. Geralt had heard of incomprehensible decrees, the slaughter of entire pedigree herds, the cessation of sowing or harvesting, and even the migration of entire villages. Local lords therefore opposed the superstition, often brutally, and freemen very quickly learned to hide as wise ones. But they didn't stop listening to their advice, because experience proved the wise ones were always right in the long run. Which is super sad when you think about it, because that means she's right about the elves would know that she's right to send them off because for whatever, they don't necessarily know the reason. But whatever humans have learned about wise ones always being right, elves would have learned that too and maybe and probably learned it long, far longer ago and have been living with this knowledge for far longer. So that's probably why they're so even more openly devout towards her and faithful and you know, because they, they've known for a long time and they've revered this for a long time. But she's in the book too, right? There's like this notion of of this, yeah. and and our elves in the book. That's another one. I wonder, like, uh, what, are they, what does it say about them? And is that why they have this superstition about the elves being evil and making monsters? Is does the book tell them that? Um, so Macrophage in the in the chat says that Lila is taken from Slavic mythology, and it's what they read about her is very accurate. So that's another thing that we don't know about. <laughs> yeah. One weird creature that gets mentioned a few times that I just had to check out was the uh, Myriapoden, which is just another example of like, you can break that down by its roots, uh, Greek roots there. You've got uh, Myria, which means many, and Pod, which means foot. So many feet, and it's a giant centipede. No, thank you. No, thank you. I decline. Not interested. Did you guys see that picture actually that was going around the internet a while ago? Like not a while ago, probably beginning of the month, where they they like they they found basically something like that, or or they speculated and built a huge model of like a a massive centipede, and oh, like yeah. that's exactly what we, we need. Don't yeah. want giant centipedes <laughs> on this planet. And so it was like I just kind of skimmed it, and I was like, well, it's twenty twenty, so like, is this going to end with? And now it's back. <laughs> <laughs> So here's another note from uh, Ludmilla about devils. You can pretty easily see how it applies. She she wrote in our Facebook group, there is interesting hierarchy among the devils. Apparently there's folk devils, noble devils, and foreign devils. 
mainly these are mainly German distinctions, apparently. In the edge of the world, we have the first kind folks are peasant devils at the bottom of the hierarchy. He's the dumbest and easily fooled, which if you can be fooled by uh, nuts as iron balls, you can <laughs> see how that would be. <laughs> Soap is cheese. Yeah, like if you're easy, that, that, does, if, if, that does sound like someone easy to fool. She also writes another interesting fact, devils are heavy and it's easiest to spot one when they get on the cart. So when Netley asks, Geralt and Jaskier to get on the cart. Her suggestion is that it, it might be like a, a reference to the way they would test people to see if they were devils back in olden times to see if, if they're hiding their weight, basically. And she also says folk devils like to eat honey and nuts, especially, and that they have musical talent. So that's, uh, that does fit extremely well. So these influences are pretty clearly in play here. That's awesome. I just thought that was interesting that, that like they're very convinced both the devils don't exist and also that they are an important, a very important part of kind of like the lexicon of this world. Like all the different groups of, of people have, you know, devil shice and a devil up by whatever, which probably means a devil up your ass. <laughs> a lot of different, <laughs> a lot of different things that are low, I think lower key lore or lower brow lore anyway, but I enjoyed <laughs> Yes, we are starving. Yes, we are threatened with annihilation. The sun shines differently. The air is different. Water is not as it used to be. The things we used to eat, made use of, are dying, diminishing, deteriorating. We never cultivated the land. Unlike you humans, we never tore at it with hoes and plows. To you, the earth pays a bloody tribute. It bestowed gifts on us. You tear the earth's treasures from it by force. For us, the earth gave birth and blossomed because it loved us. Well, no love lasts forever, but we still want to survive. Ooh. That's strong, huh? It's, it's, that's, that touches on what we were talking about before, about the difference in how humans and elves deal with nature and how they, you know, elves revere it, where humans, it's, uh, it's used to serve them. And I don't know that, I mean, it's not like either side is wrong. It's just very, very different. Yeah. And I mean, just the idea of like, you know, you were in one kind of story and then the story rejected you. you know, that's that's a really, like, th- that. that's such a sad idea. Like that no love lasts forever. You know, that, that, that we were the, you know, the chosen children of the earth and then the earth moved on, Lila moved on to someone else. And it's, yeah, I don't know. It's intense, man. I don't really know what to make of it. It's like <laughs> that goes along with the theme of annihilation and history being rewritten and that them disappearing and mm. and all of that. Which is that that's like really sad. Really sad. It's like ignorance is bliss. The humans have shorter lifespans, so they don't they're never gonna see this happen. And if they do or if they do, they won't see it, they won't see the long, slow death of their people. We live longer, we have more perspective, yet they get all these rewards. They're the ones living happily, yet well, it doesn't seem fair, right? Like, uh, mm, ah. Yeah, I, I mean, I think that idea of, you know, the, the elves, like the very thing that makes the elves better, right? Like is, you know, their, their longevity, their, their connection to the earth is exactly the cause of their suffering now. And that's a kind of suffering that humans couldn't experience is, yeah, that's uh, pretty potent. Yeah. So talk about racism. That's um, the neck, obviously a, a strong theme with elves and, and 
humans having very strong reactions to each other. There's obviously exceptions. As you mentioned, Mikal, there's a Charidian in the next story and he's lives amongst humans. There's lots of elves that do that. There's half-elves, quarter-elves, etc. Different human nations have different sort of general attitudes towards elves. The Nilfgaardians are closer to the elves in a lot of ways, in part because their culture is closer to the elves. Their language has more elvish in it, things like that. On the other hand, there's places that are extremely anti-elven that... The elven structure of the way things work is so different because they can live for hundreds of years. Humans have this more kind of transactional relationship with life because it's shorter. You know what I mean? As opposed to like elves, which is like more enriched by the world and nature and their connection to things. The, the, the racism, the interactions between humans and elves and the marginalization of elves and, and other magical species um, is really where Sapkowski starts. Like some of the metaphors are to pull away. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's not <laughs> metaphor. <know? laughs> it's direct commentary. He, he definitely goes into the idea that like, sure, like they could assimilate, but it's not going to be nice. Like, so this quote is from, again, Philavandral, um, Cohabit on your terms, acknowledging your sovereignty, losing our identity. Cohabit as what? Slaves? Pariahs? Cohabit with you from beyond the walls you've built to fence yourselves away in towns. Cohabit with your women and hang for it. Or look on what half-blood children must live with. Why are you avoiding my eyes, strange human? How do you find cohabiting with neighbors from whom, after all, you do differ somewhat? And yeah, that idea that the difference is like the, the prejudice is going to endure even when they're pretending that there isn't prejudice there. You know, like I, I think there's just, I, I don't really want to draw any too direct parallels because I, I don't want to be like disrespectful of real life occurrences. But I think all of what he's referencing here, we can definitely see in real world uh, marginalization of people by other, by other humans. So. Yeah, I found that really intense and something that is very important to keep in mind going forward. Just a really important theme to keep in mind going forward because it's definitely something that Sapkowski has a lot to say about. That's why Geralt's perspective is so interesting because he's neutral, you know, like he's. Mm-hmm. But but yet yeah. yet he has experienced some of the same things as Philovandril, and he was also a human before he became a waitress. He does have some outcast experience, like a significant amount of that, and the long life thing. Definitely more lived experience than, say, uh, Dandelion. <laughs> 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 it, was always tell- it was always telling him, listen here, this is important. You should be paying attention. Shot, shots fired, man. <laughs> I manage because I have to. Because I have no other way out. Because I've overcome the vanity and pride of being different. I've understood that they are a pitiful defense against being different. Because I've understood that the sun shines differently when something changes, but I'm not the axis of those changes. The sun shines differently, but it will continue to shine. And jumping at it with a hoe isn't going to do anything. We've got to accept facts, else. That's what we've got to learn. Yeah, it comes back around to that narrative, right? Like, which which story are you telling yourself? Like, which... Is it vanity? Is it, you know, is, is it true what Gerald's saying? Is it, or is it, you know... I don't know. What's the value of pride? Some people would say it's worthless, but some people would say it has some value and some people would fall in between. So it's not up to Geralt to tell elves what that means, but 
he can tell them what it, it costs them. Right. Right. Which is so interesting because he really is that point in the middle and fitting in neither community of humans or non-humans. Yeah. Look at those purple flowers. They're lupins. They's be vetch, to be true, interrupted Netley. Have you nice seen lupins or what? <laughs> so, so vetch is a common old legume. It's been domesticated. It's like one of the first things ever domesticated as far as plants. It was probably like since BC 9500 or something crazy like that. But we still use it all over the world. Something like 900,000 tons of it was grown in our, worldwide in 2017. But lupins, lupins actually the joke here. It comes from the word lupus, which means wolf. So <laughs> it's, it's a joke about wolves, but also lupins symbolize imagination and new opportunities, which clearly is, you can see how that applies to this theme, to this story here, new opportunities, imagination. Dandelion's very imaginative. He's thinking of how to tell the story afterwards and embellish it a little bit. But like two sentences later, after that quote, when Netley is done correcting Dandelion because his, his correction takes a little longer, the bard says... The Valley of Flowers, Dalblafana, and then he says, You're paying attention. The elves have gone, but their name remains. Lack of imagination. Yeah, so I think that he's having a little joke there with the Lupin theme, so. Oh, that's funny. <laughs> yeah. Sneaky Sepkowski. <laughs> yep, very good. So, Buttercups. Now, we talked about dandelions before, but Buttercup is probably the better thing to look into as far as Jaskier's character, because... The translation of Jaskier is buttercup, and then they just decided to change that to dandelion since it sounds more masculine, even though it's not really that much more masculine. But, <laughs> but Sapkowski's intent was the word buttercup. So the word buttercup, the scientific name, the original name is ranunculus, which translates to little frog. And just so happens that dandelion is dressed in all green here in this story. So that's probably intentional. The translation of Buttercup into Dutch is Renoncol. In Italian, it's Renoncolo. So there's all sorts of translations that are different. Like, this is funny because dandelion is an existing word. So it's not a name. In other words, mm-hmm. uh, I mean, it is a name, but it, that, the translations are funny. Like, you translate Geralt of, Geralt of Rivia into any other language, it's still pretty much Geralt. Occasionally, it's like Geralto or Geraltus, but it's pretty much the same. But this word comes out so very differently because you're, you're dealing with an existing word. Dandelion is already a word for dandelion or buttercup in all these languages. So it presents with some weird challenges like in Czech, dandelion is marigold and tris marigold is tris ranuncle, (laughs) which like ranunculus. So it all gets twisted around a bit. And then just for fun, the translation of buttercup into German is rittersporn. And in Swedish, it's rittersporn, which I just, I just think German is comes up is, is great. It's it very so similar to Spurge. It's like a weird, creepy, yes. <laughs> creepy word for a plant. Ritter's horn. <laughs> <laughs> so as far as what they symbolize and their nature, buttercups come in a variety of colors, like a very large variety of colors, which that is absolutely true, Jaskier. He comes in a variety of colors. And I don't mean that metaphorically. I mean, he dresses in a, in a wide variety of big colors. Purple, perhaps more often than anything else, but other things. And there are, they symbolize positive things like charm and positivity and, and staying upbeat, facing challenges. So that's pretty, you can see how that applies to him. Now, obviously, symbolism for flowers is 
tends to be pretty vague, but still that applies pretty well. Fertility and growth. Yeah, that. which obviously fits really well with this story. So this little last little bit is the perfect lead-in to our funniest moments because this is these are two original legends about buttercups, about ranunculi. The first one is a Persian legend about a Persian prince who dresses in green and gold. So I'm going to keep a lookout in the future for Jaskier dressed in green and gold. He's certainly dressed in green in this one. And he sings to this nymph. So right there we have singing. And the nymph loves him and he loves her back. But the other nymphs just don't like this relationship. So they turn him into a flower. (laughs) And of course, it's a buttercup. An alternate version is that he died of a broken heart because the nymph rejected him and a flower, a buttercup grew on the spot he died. So then there's a second story, and this is a Native American story, and it's pretty weird. There's a coyote who, just for fun, he's tossing his eyes into the air. Yeah, his eyeballs. He's throwing them into the air for fun. So what? Uh, An eagle flies by and is like, "Mm, free eyes and eats them because they're in the air. Because, you know, if you're a bird and there's eyes flying around, you eat them. And so this coyote is like, well, that stinks. So now I need new eyes. So what does he do? He replaces his eyes with buttercups. That's the story. What? (laughs) So I, I asked them offline. I was like, is that Less or more weird than the flying fish story from the Cinderella legends. So you you all can decide for yourselves which of those is stranger, but they're both cool and interesting. And there's probably some deep symbolism and cultural significance that is way over our heads. The alderman quite visibly started to think again. <laughs> 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 What, 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 about, what about this one? The etching showed a disheveled monstrosity with enormous eyes and even larger teeth riding a horse. In its right hand, the monstrous being wielded a substantial sword. In its left, a bag of money. A witchman, <laughs> mumbled the woman. Called by some a witcher. To summon him is most dangerous, albeit one must. For when against the monster and the vermin there be no aid, the witchman can contrive. But one must be careful to... Enough, muttered Geralt. Enough, Grandma. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) No, no, protested Dandelion with a malicious smile. How does it go on? What a greatly interesting book. Go on, Granny, go on. (laughs) But one must be careful not to touch the witchman, for thus the mange can one acquire, and lasses do from him hide away, for lustful the witchman is above all. Why <laughs> correct? Spot on! Laughed the poet, and Leela, so it seemed to Geralt, smiled almost imperceptibly. Though the witchman greatly covetous and greedy for gold be, and mumbled the old woman, half closing her eyes, giveth ye not such a one more than for a downer, one silver penny, or three halves, for a werecat, silver pennies, two. For a plumber's silver pennies. Those were the days, muttered the witcher. <laughs> 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 There's so many That's great quotes. So like good. we could do a we could do a whole episode on comedy. Yes, we could. <laughs> this one would be like the lead. This is the story of all. I mean, there's there's always funny quotes. That's why we have a section every time, but this one really is a cut above. 
Having broken his teeth, he will be attentive as thou eatest the honey. Of said honey will him he himself desire. Givest him a birch tar, then yourself eateth soft cheese. Soon hearest thou, will the devil grumbleth and tumbleth, but makest of it as not. Yet if the devil, the devil desireth soft cheese, give him soap. For soap the devil withstandeth not. You got to the soap, interrupted Geralt, with a stony expression turning towards Dune and Netley. In no way, groaned Netley, if only we had got to the balls. But he gave us what for when he bit a ball. <laughs> and who told you to give him so many? Dandelion was enraged. It stands written in the book. One fistful to take, yet he gave us a ball of sackful. <laughs> he furnished him with ammunition for two years, the fool DB. <laughs> <laughs> Our friend Lady Gwen, shout out to Radio Westeros podcast, said, Yet ye gaveth of balls a sackful is one of the best comic lines from an ever comedic character. <laughs> when Geralt and Dandelion are discussing. The plans? What do you want to do? Rummage around a bit in the hem. That's original, snorted the troubadour, though not too refined. And you, how would you go about it? Intelligently. Ick, <laughs> ick, <laughs> Bill, bleated the goat hold an agreement or denial or simply bleeding for the sake of it. <laughs> it's like, he's agreeing, he's denying, or he's just bleeding. <laughs> You should listen to that in the audiobook. It's absolutely yeah. hilarious. Jason Kenny. Is it no, not Peter Jason Kenny, Kenny. Peter yeah. Kenny. No, Peter. Sorry. <laughs> uh, Ryan Burns has one from our Facebook group, Aziz. The next few minutes passed in an intense skirmish and exchange of insults and kicks. If Geralt was pleased about anything, it was only that nobody could see him, for it was a truly ridiculous sight. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <Aww>. <laughs> <laughs> Ludmila had yeah. another one saying, Vyaskir suddenly looked around. Someone's following us, he said, excited. In a cart! Incredible, <laughs> scoffed the witcher without looking around. In a cart? And I thought that the locals rode on bats. <laughs> Do you know what? Growled the troubadour. The closer we get to the edge of the world, the sharper your wit. I dread to think what it will come to. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So we can make that sort of a regular thing, y'all. If you pull your favorite funniest quotes, they don't have to be your funniest, but in the Facebook group, if you guys join or tweet at us, your favorite quote from each story or chapter, and we'll we'll shout out some of the best ones. Think of it as our like mailbag section, kind of. Yeah. Yeah, so let's, uh, let's get to thanking some people, Aziz. Yeah, well, thanks to the Witcher Wiki, we certainly get some information from there. In particular, I got the information on the translations, the various forms of dandelion slash buttercup. That was really helpful. And then I did my, my research on symbol, the symbolism of flowers. I got from a variety of places, but the site that I most want to uh, shout out is petalrepublic.com, obviously P-E-T-A-L. There's, that's a really, that's, that's proven a very good site over several instances of researching flower symbolism, which just keeps coming up. Herb lore and flowers, like every episode, we've had at least a little something. Some episodes more than others, but there's always been a little something and that's going to most likely continue, well, until it doesn't, until there isn't something to say. <laughs> so that's going to do it for today. Next time, we're going to be covering The Last Wish. That is the biggest short story in chapter by a significant margin. 
Of course, a big reason why this episode happened was because of the awesome members that support our podcast and this channel. So we want to thank everyone for that. Uh, Aziz, do you have a list of names of the people that hit the support button on Anchor? Absolutely. Thanks to Mara, Ryan B, Sam D, James G, and we have one anonymous supporter as well. So thanks to all five of y'all. And it sounds seems like we may have had a, a, someone join the channel today as well. Yeah, someone joined the channel. I believe it was Aegon the Sixth. I'll describe our whole expedition to the edge of the world in a ballad, declared Dandelion. And I'll describe you in it too, Talk. Don't think you'll get away with it, growled the Sylvan. I'll write a ballad too then and describe you, but in such a bad way as you won't be able to show your face in decent company for 12 years. So watch out. <laughs> so watch out for the next podcast a surprise we'll be back soon thanks again everyone for joining us have a great weekend stay safe bye, bye.